If you have your Bibles, let's open them now to the book of Romans. I am excited about returning to the book of Romans. It's been a little while, and uh, I've been enjoying time uh, reading through it over and over again. Today we will look at chapter 5 and the first five verses. Uh, There is a wealth here of information that is uh, extremely helpful to us as we live our lives uh, this side of eternity. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, And our God, we thank you that we have gathered together for the purpose of hearing you speak to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use me as an instrument today to communicate to your people uh, truth that is so desperately needed by us all, uh, preacher included. And we do pray that you would make your word effective among us, that it would produce in us the fruit that redounds to your glory. May we see Jesus today and him only as we hear the word of God expounded. And we pray that uh, you would be pleased with what you accomplished through this today. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now today we're going to be talking about the fruit of justification And justification is something we spent a lot of time talking about prior to chapter 5. As a matter of fact, if you'll look back at the last verse of chapter 4, we have here, speaking of our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so, since the opening verse says, therefore... One of the things I learned in a class called hermeneutics in seminary, which is the science of interpretation. They taught us regularly ways in which we could learn to interpret Scripture. And there were a lot of rules. But one of the rules I remember most vividly is that when you run into the word, therefore, in the Bible, you always ask the question, what is the therefore there for. Let me repeat that. What is the therefore, therefore? 
And it is to point us both backwards and forwards. And it points to, it's sort of a link with everything Paul had said uh, from chapter 3, 21 up to the end of chapter 4 regarding the great doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so, since he refers to it here, uh, as part of his argument, he's referring back uh, to chapter 4 and especially chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. And he tells us, again, that faith is the means of responding to God's promise and experiencing justification. And that was the focus from 327 to 425. So chapter 5, verse 11, picks up the strands from Paul's exposition in the earlier chapters and brings to bear upon us the gospel and the assurance it offers by focusing on the hope provided to us through the gospel and the assurance it offers in the face of suffering. So truly understanding, receiving, believing, resting in the gospel has everything to do with how you and I experience peace, access, joy, endurance, in suffering, and hope. All of those are related. And so what we have is the bud of justification opening up petal by petal into a beautiful flower in the first half of chapter 5. But just in case you've forgotten the doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, I'm going to repeat it for you in a nutshell. And the nutshell is justification by faith alone refers to what we call the gospel. We are justified freely by his grace, that is, without a cause. God does not look at us nor in us to find reasons to be kind or good or gracious to us because there's nothing to find in there, nothing but sin. And so God, out of his benevolence, out of his gracious, uh, tender heart filled with mercy, has sent his son for the purpose of accomplishing for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. Justification is far more than just being pardoned for our sins. It is far more than that. It's far more than trying to be a moral person. It's even more than just mere forgiveness. Justification is God legally declaring a verdict over us. And he is saying to us, as the Bible says, we have been declared by God to be righteous. We have a standing before him that is declared by him. It is something objective. It's something outside of us. There is no grace infused in us that we perfect. And as we develop along the way, we ultimately reach a point where God can say, all right, you're righteous. No, this is something outside of us. This is something God declares to be true. And it is this. Once you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, once you turn from your sin and collapse into the arms of Jesus, God declares at that moment that you are right now, forever, as righteous as Jesus is. You 
Wear the clothes. You are clothed in Christ. You are in union with Christ. And when God looks at you, he sees only that which is to delight in. He is not your enemy. He's not your judge. He's not after you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not hoping you'll eventually break through. He knows you never will apart from his grace and help. But what he does say is, I'm delighted in you. I rejoice over you with singing. I love you with a love you will never be able to fathom. It wasn't that Jesus went to the cross to convince God to love us. Jesus went to the cross because God the Father loved us and because Jesus loved us. And so our sins are removed from us. We are no longer under condemnation. And then Paul in Romans chapter 5 says to us, not only are we justified by faith, but we have peace with God. Now, for Paul to say that we have peace with God must mean that before our justification in Christ, we were not at peace with God, but rather we were at war with God. And again, Paul is referring to something outside of us in terms of the peace. It is an objective peace, something accomplished. Colossians tells us in chapter 1, verse 20, through the blood of the cross, Christ has reconciled us as to the Father. Prior to this peace that we, that we know and see that Christ has accomplished for us, and in the process of understanding that and believing that, sometimes we will feel peace with God, sometimes we will not. You can't go by your emotions in this thing called the Christian life because our emotions need sanctification too. They are not the hallmark of, of, of uh, spiritual life. Somebody told me one time, well, Pastor Tim, I feel really bad because I don't feel like praying. I said, I never feel like praying, but I just pray anyway. And then I start feeling like praying when I do it. You know, you can't get the cart before the horse. You have to get the horse before the cart. But understanding this peace that we have is is there was a war going on. And who was the war between? You and God. You were at war with God. The carnal or fleshly mind is at enmity with God, Romans 8, 7. There was a hostility between you and the Father before you received Christ. You were standing underneath the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not some sort of irrational temper tantrum, but rather the judicial verdict of God toward us in our sin. We were at war with him. We were hostile to him. We did not want him to be Lord over us. We did not want him telling us what to do. So we rebelled against him. We were hostile on every front. You don't know that until after you become a Christian. But believe you me, we were at war with him. And he was standing in judgment upon us. But because of the work of Christ upon the cross and because of justification by faith, we now live in the realm of peace with God. We are no longer at war with him. Our arms have been laid down and now we are worshipers of his beauty and his holiness and we are drawn to him and we long to know him even more and more deeply 
And so we have peace with God. That's one of the unfolding petals of the flower of the gift of justification. So, we have highlighted the relational nature of this peace. First, it is something that objectively is accomplished, but now it is something that is historically applied to us uh, through the nature of the gospel. The second thing we have is access. We have access. And I did a lot of study on this particular passage because it's been five weeks since I preached. And uh, you might get a two-hour sermon today. That's usually what happens. I did preach last week, but it was short. So many people tell me it's the best sermon I've ever heard you preach. (laughs) I don't really know how to take that. I do know how to take it, and I don't like it. But anyway, (laughs) you can tell I've been around my grandson because my grandson says to me when I'm putting on a program that I think he wants to watch, he will go, no like it, no like it. And I looked at him and I said, tell me what that means. And he said, no like it. I mean, how can you not get that? He's looking at me like, how can you not get that? So I move it over to something else on YouTube, and he goes, like it. <laughs> and uh, it's a joy to hear the like it. The no like it kind of works on me. I'm such a joyful, kind, and loving grandfather, though. You, you would be surprised. But we not only have peace with God. But we have something called access. And this access is astounding. What the word used here for access is an introduction into royalty or a palace or a temple. It it would even be equivalent to an introduction. In other words, you have someone to vouch for you that you can enter into the very presence of the king. And because of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we have something called access and a standing forever that is based upon grace. So that means you and I do not have to cower before the presence of God. We are his children. We are adopted into his family, and we have the privilege and even the right to come boldly before the throne of grace and to seek and find mercy and help in time of need because we stand in grace. My standing before God is in the realm of grace. I don't think we all know how deep and far that goes. We are now under grace. We are now living before the face of God in his grace. And it is a beautiful and delightful truth for ourselves. And this standing is really an introduction. It's really something that strikes us as such a privilege to be able to live before the face of God with confidence and boldness not because of anything we are but because of everything Jesus is and we are united to him and so the doors open for us we can literally stand in the holy of holies because of what Christ has accomplished you realize as Dave mentioned during his 
uh, call to worship, I believe, today, that the temple um, curtain between the holy place where the priests were and the holy of holies was split down the middle when Christ died. Signifying what? That now those of us who are united to him by faith do not have to cower before the presence of God, do not have to fear death, do not have to only enter on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. We live, as it were, in the Holy of Holies with God, our Father, present every day, every minute. And that standing we have is not because we've been good. We have certainly not. Not because we've been righteous in ourselves. We have certainly not. Not because we're religious people. Not because we're good people, smart people, better than others, more moral than others. No, the only reason we have access is grace. And that's God's goodness to us in spite of what we are inside. Now, you're beginning to see as we go further through these benefits of justification a very subtle move in the book of uh, Romans. Up to this point, when he's been talking about justification, those are all things that happen outside of us. Peace happens outside of you. But then he begins as we enter into the word joy, suffering and endurance and hope, he begins to enter into something inside of us. He moves from justification, the doctrine, to sanctification. And sanctification is changing us inside out. It is changing our hearts. We are being shaped and delivered more and more from the power of sin and empowered more and more by the Spirit of God. And it is a process that lasts the rest of our lives. Nobody ever fully gets sanctified. But he begins to shift that because in Romans chapter 6, which is coming up, he's going to talk about how sanctification occurs. Chapter 7, the place of the law in that relationship. Chapter 8, one of the most beautiful chapters, most favorite in the entire Bible for many people. So he's, there's a subtle shift here away from access or, or into access, which we all have as a benefit of justification. So, when we think about the goodness and mercy of God that has fallen upon us, uh, we have experienced, because of God's grace, amazing things. And the fact that we live and have a standing in grace, uh, I want to read from you, for you a quote I found by a man by the name of Ashley Null. I doubt anybody in here knows him. If you do, be sure to tell me afterwards and I'll ask you why you're such a weirdo. No, I won't. But <laughs> Ashley Knoll wrote the uh, preface to the works of Thomas Cranmer, who was a British Reformation champion. And he says this. He says, I grew up in Kansas and I never saw a horse pushing a cart. Pulling? Yeah. But pushing? I never saw that happen. Not even one time. After all, a horse's head is not really designed to efficiently push a cart, but its body is so effective at pulling a cart that even after human society made the transition from work animals to machines, we still refer to the energy required to move things in, in units of horsepower. 
However, when it comes to the Christian life, this inversion of horse and cart seems to happen all the time. I continue to quote, Let me explain one of the most basic principles in Christianity is to get straight which comes first, the cart or the horse. Do we initiate and God responds? Or does God initiate and we respond? Do we take a step towards God and consequently he takes a step toward us? Or does God come to us, embrace us, hugging us tight with his love so that we find ourselves instinctively drawn to put our arms around him in return, receiving the fullness of the love which he is imparting to us? Or rather, do we try to do something in between those two diametrically opposed approaches? Do we start with the horse first, but then switch to the cart? No, we do not. Are we saved by Christ's gift on the cross, but expect afterwards to be sanctified by our own efforts? Is our will bound before salvation, but afterwards it must choose to initiate godliness? Or worse, do we think that our choices after salvation earns God's further blessing? In short, are we saved by grace but sustained by our own sweat? Or do we keep the horse in front of the cart from the beginning of our Christian lives to the consummation in the age to come? Philippians 1, 6 teaches us that God will complete the good work he has begun in us. Philippians 2 goes even further, telling us not uh, that out of the desire and power to choose God instead of sin is actually his work in us. In short, do we long for God to lead us? Do we expect or at least hope that he will get behind what we're already doing and push us along our own way? Of course. We are not the first generations of Christians to put the cart before the horse in matters of faith. These essential questions were the same ones which 16th century Protestants, like Martin Luther, wrestled with. Thomas Cranmer found the definitive answer in Scripture, namely the grace and gratitude theology outlined by Paul in his epistles, not I but Christ, not my works but by his promised gift of faith, not just for my salvation only, but for my salvation, sanctification, and glorification. In short, Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's what it means to stand in grace and to remain standing in grace. So let's move on as we look at joy. Look in uh, Romans chapter 5 where he says through him or excuse me verse 3 not only that we rejoice in our sufferings no I want to go before that excuse me the latter part of verse 2 into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does it mean to have joy in hope of the glory of God? Well, very interesting to think about that and meditate on that a while. There are a number of directions Scripture can take us with this concept of the glory of God. But the first place I think we need to start is that we have been justified by faith alone and Christ alone through grace alone for the glory of God alone. And because of that, we have peace with God. Because of that, we have a standing in grace. And because of that, we no longer experience shame, but rather what? Joy. 
The glory of God, of the human creature, was being made in his image and declared by God to be good. We lost that glory in the fall of Adam and Eve. And what replaced our glory was a consuming sense of shame and loathing and self-hatred. Because we know in our inner hearts that we can't live up. And we know, even though people say, I don't believe in guilt, I don't believe in shame, I don't believe in any of that, well, keep talking, but you're full of it. You're absolutely leaking out every pore in your being. You feel worthless. You feel like you have nothing to give, nothing to offer. And that's a result of Adam's fall. We lost our glory. And part of the giving of glory is Christ to forgive our sins and give us his righteousness and now with joy we can lift up our heads and praise God our shame is gone he took it upon the cross he bore it in his body on the tree he paid for it he experienced the depths of it so that we could experience his glory do you know that And do you know that even in the process of sanctification, you are being changed from one degree of glory to another by the Spirit as we behold the glory of Christ himself? That one day the glory we will know in heaven will not be worthy to be compared with the suffering we experienced here? That the weight of eternal glory far exceeds the depths of any suffering we do. Hallelujah. We're able to have joy even in the face of that which we suffer because we know that suffering produces in us hope. It produces in us a greater desire to experience the glory of God. And part of what will make heaven heaven will be the absence of shame and the possession of glory fully revealed. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's what John says in 1 John. So the shame is gone. And we have joy even in the midst of suffering. And so we can boast even in our suffering in so many ways because of the glory God has for us. Let us continue because now we're going to talk about something very important. All of it's important, but this gets even more so. Verse 3, not only that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering is productive. Let's just stop right there. When, when Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings, he's not being a masochist. He's not being one of these people who say you earn points with God because of what you suffer. Or that you may think to yourself, I'm a deeper, not a shallow person because of all the things I've suffered in life. And you have what I call suffering righteousness. You think you're more holy because of what you've suffered. That's not what Paul's talking about. Not at all what Paul is talking about here. What is he talking about? He says suffering produces something in our life. And the very word he uses for suffering here is not necessarily the most common word in the Bible for suffering. It's a word that means pressure. It's a word that means stress. It's a word that means friction. All of us who live in Christ Jesus will experience suffering. 
Nobody rejoices in the fact of suffering, but we can rejoice in what suffering produces. I was reading a sermon recently by Sinclair Ferguson, who may be my favorite living preacher these days. And Dr. Ferguson was talking about his mother. And apparently his mother was well known for her cleanliness ethic and her work ethic involved in keeping the house clean. That sounds wonderful to have a mother like that, wouldn't it? Except when she takes you into her army and makes you part of the cleanliness workforce, which Sinclair said happened. He said his job was polishing brass doorknobs. And in Scotland, he said, the house I grew up in must have had 25 brass doorknobs. He said his mother would take something called brasso or brassoe, something like that, and she would take a cloth and she would put the stuff on there and let it sit for a while. They usually did all of them, and then they would come back, and he would take a cloth, or she would take a cloth, and begin polishing. And she would polish and polish and polish and polish, and then she stepped back, and she looked at Sinclair and said, touch the doorknob, which she did, and it was hot because she had been what? Friction on the doorknob over and over. He said, but eventually she would take that cloth and finish wiping it off. She would stoop down to get on his eye level because he's a little boy. They would both look at that doorknob and they could see their reflection in the doorknob. Do you get it? Suffering is the friction on the doorknob of our reflecting God's glory to the world. Suffering produces in us what we will be told in a minute is perseverance. It produces in us. Well, let's talk about those things because those things begin to be reflected from our character through the process. And so the wonderful truth about suffering is God, who is our gracious Father, takes the suffering we experience and produces something in us that overturns and transforms and swallows up even the suffering process. Now, there's nobody here that should like suffering. If you like suffering, come see me. You need help. You need help if you enjoy suffering. Nobody likes it. I don't like it. I don't like stress. I don't like hardship. I don't like difficulty. I don't like any of it. But yet, when I read God's Word, the Lord has the power and the ability to transform and produce in me that which is good for me and for him for eternity through the process of suffering. And so suffering becomes, as it were, transformative for us. Under God's hand, he makes suffering serve for our good. To where even Paul says, I can boast in my suffering. Thus, under God's good hand, the suffering we experience produces something called perseverance. And perseverance means the ability to endure difficulties with patience and fortitude. Perseverance is really poise. Uh, one of the things I know about perseverance and poise was from the life I had in sports and my knowledge of sports, which is encyclopedic. But that's neither here nor there, as my father used to say. So what? But... 
Here's what I know. Let's say that you're in college and you've got a really good football team and you've been in the cellar, you've been in the basement, you hadn't been any good in 10 years. And then one year you get a new coach and you get a great quarterback and the team turns around and they start winning games and winning games and winning games and before you know it, they're in the playoffs. And so some commentator comes on, some talking head, and says to you before the championship game, I'm not going for this new team. I'm going to go for this team that's won like eight championships. And we're all sitting there going, yeah, right. But his point is, this team doesn't have the poise to compete in the championship because they haven't learned perseverance. What gives us poise in the Christian life? What enables us to persevere? What produces perseverance in us? It is this process of suffering. And this is one of the benefits of justification because you learn to look at your suffering not as punishment from God, not as discipline from God, not as judgment from God. That's not what he's doing. He hates it as much as we do. He hates it more than we do if you're suffering in your seat right now in the middle of your heart and you have no reason to know why. God hates it too, but he's not trumped by it. He produces beautiful things in us as we suffer. And he's busy doing that even now. So... We see that if suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance in turn produces this thing called character. And the word translated in character has to do with a person who passes the test. Someone who is proven through testing. They have been tested in life. They have suffered in life. What we tend to do, unless we truly understand the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, is we tend to look at suffering as, well, maybe God's displeased with me. Maybe God doesn't like me very much. Maybe God's got it out for me. Maybe God's angry with me. Maybe God doesn't really love me like the way he loves other people. And we begin to doubt, doubt, and doubt. And the doctrine of justification comes in and says, shut your mouth. Hush. Understand that none of that can be true because you are justified by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. And therefore, you are a darling to God. You are the delight of his eyes. Suffering doesn't change that. Suffering is a reality that occurs in a fallen world, in a hostile culture, and we all will experience, but it doesn't deny the rights and privileges we have of being justified, and it produces in us proven character. How does it do that? Character developed by perseverance produces something else in us. It produces hope. While it's easy to understand how suffering produces perseverance and how perseverance produces character, it's a little more difficult to understand how character produces hope. And so I think the best we can do with that is to surmise that if the character produced by the perseverance includes a greater trust in God, this in turn strengthens our hope of sharing the glory promised by God. The following comment uh, I'm going to make is by Douglas Moo, a Lutheran commentator on the book of Romans. He says this, Suffering, rather than threatening or weakening hope, as we might expect to be the case, will instead increase our certainty in that hope. 
Hope in the Bible, by the way, is not wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is certainty that what God has said and what God has promised regarding the future will occur. It is it is absolutely certain to occur, and it is confidence in that. But Moo says it actually increases it. Hope is like a muscle. Will not be strong if it goes unused. It is in suffering that we must exercise with deliberation and fortitude our hope. And the constant reaffirmation of hope in the midst of an apparently hopeless circumstances will bring even deeper conviction of the reality and certainty of that which we hope for. Hope does not put us to shame, meaning that hope will never not deliver. It always delivers because it's in God. And it's having confidence in God. But he doesn't stop there. He's got one more. Look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us as pure gift. The love of God has been given to us. Paul's addition of verse 5 right after verses 3 through 4 seems to mean that Christians who focus single-mindedly on prayer and obedience to God and who therefore grow in confidence will experience more of his love during suffering, an outpouring of love into our hearts. Many Christians testify that they feel more of God's presence and love during suffering because it makes them focus on him and trust him more. But Paul is saying more than that. What he's saying here is, is that God, by pouring out his spirit, the spirit does not come to indwell us empty-handed. The spirit, Holy Spirit, for the believer brings with him a sense, a conviction, a knowledge, a participation in the love of God. That is not my love for God. That would be subjective, but objectively, God's love for me. And so what he's teaching us is, is that during the process of, of suffering and the development of hope and the turning to God more and more than we ever have in our lives for strength and hope and deliverance also intensifies our understanding that God is not against us, but that God loves us. And that love has a power to shape us. And once we taste it, we long for it. We want it more and more. So as we close this morning, we've seen together some of the benefits of justification by faith. Next week, we will look at the rest of chapter 11 and understand what it means to say how we can know for sure that God has demonstrated to us that he loves us more than we could ever dream or hope for. But that experience of love that the Holy Spirit communicates to us is that same spirit that the Holy Spirit or same communication of our adoption into sonship, all of that is part and parcel of the work of the Spirit in our souls to make us see and taste and benefit and be buoyed up by and strengthened by the knowledge that God loves me. I couldn't dare dream or hope that anybody would love me the way God loves me. 
And that sustains us during this process of the opening bud of the flower of the benefits of justification. Some of them are unusual, granted, but they're all real. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you've shown us in this chapter. And there's more here, obviously, than we could get to in the rest of our lives if we did it every day. But we do thank you for the gifts that come to us as a result of your justification of us by faith. Father, we pray that we would learn well how to suffer well because certainly it is part and parcel of life in this world. And it is also a participation that we are privileged to enter into the sufferings of Christ himself. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we give his people who find our hope and find our joy in you, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen.